What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. Today I have Nish Shah, a lifelong strategist from Canada, who's just starting up a new company focusing on helping other people and other companies pitch. The company is called Pitch Factory. Today we're going to talk about pitching. And in the second half of the interview, we're also going to think through some practical tips for people going to Can. So it's pronounced, it's not pronounced Can, it's pronounced Can in southern France very soon for the Festival of Creativity, but especially for the young lions who are going to go over there to compete with each other. Nish, welcome to Sweathead. Awesome. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. You are in the earliest stages of setting up what you're going to do for the rest of your life, or at least like the next part of it, right? And you've decided to focus on helping companies pitch. One of the things I often get asked is, how will I work out what to do after? And what people mean by that is at some point, they know that they're not necessarily going to be working in an agency or being an employee strategist. And they're like, I don't know, would I be a psychologist, a teacher? You're going to focus on helping people pitch. Why? It's an interesting question, Mark, because as a lifelong strategist, it's a question that I've been asking myself all the time. So what do I do? And is this what I want to make my life's work? And I've been given kind of a chance to redesign my life. And I've been thinking a lot about what is the thing that I love doing? And here's the deal. I love winning. And I think it's why I've been so addicted to the ad industry is because I love a good pitch. And when I start to think about my career and all the different things that I've done from working at the NHL to working at Meta to working at agencies, the thing that I've just loved has been the pitch. And so when I started to get some clarity of what do I want to do? What do I want to make my life's work? I start zeroing in on the pitch, which sounds crazy because the pitch process can be very stressful. But that is the thing that I'm super passionate about. And this thing that I call pitching with joy. A lot of times pitches are not pitched with joy. They're pitched out of fear. Because there's a lot at stake, especially for an agency. The lifeblood of a great agency is how well you pitch. And I believe that pitching with joy, when you don't get so focused on the outcome, of course, everyone pitches not to lose. But when you get focused on the outcome, you lose sight of that creation process. And that creation process has to start from joy. Agencies don't have an R&D line item. But I believe that pitches are the line item for research and development for an agency. And that is where a lot of really great things can come from if you're pitching with joy. So before we get into what you've learned about pitching and what you want to teach about pitching, I just want to focus a little bit more on how you arrived at this as being the thing to focus on for the next few years. Was it something that you thought about for a while or did it hit you due to crisis? Or were you walking along a beach in, in a beautiful situation and you're like, you know what, I want to focus on pitching. You know, what was the emotional state that led to this decision? Interestingly enough, I was out with the family in Costa Rica for a week. I literally put my phone away and I just focused on being present in the moment within nature absorbing everything. And towards the end of that trip, I got on the plane and 
I just pulled out my notebook and I just started writing what I wanted to do. And that's where this whole idea of the Pitch Factory came from. I've been fascinated with the music industry for a very long time. There is a very famous studio, Mark, I think you know it, out in New York. I believe they have a location in Miami as well called the Hit Factory. And I just love the concept of musicians and producers coming together and producing a hit. And I often feel that the pitch process is like that. You're bringing together different people to create a hit. And it should feel really exciting. It should feel that energy is when you know you're onto something. So I started thinking a lot about that. And that's kind of where this idea was born of the pitch factory and in homage to the hit factory. Yeah, I'm two blocks from the Hit Factory. I've walked past it a few times after we moved recently. I'm like, oh my God, is that the Hit Factory? I think Michael Jackson made music there. So many famous songs came out of the Hit Factory. So you were in Costa Rica, you put the phone away, you were reflecting about what you wanted to do in the next phase of your life, and then you allowed the words to come out. I personally believe, this isn't a big revelation, a big epiphany, that often the answers are within us. If you said to me, hey, Mark, what should I do? And I was like, you should become an astronaut and go to space. You'd be like, what? Why? That's not in me. The way that you would actually work out what's in, like what you wanted to do is by exploring what's already in you. I know it's such an obvious thing to do or to say. As you arrived at that epiphany, what was your emotional state then? Because the next step is to take responsibility for it and to turn it into a thing that you then take action through. I agree. It's within you. The problem is there's just so much noise. There are so many different directions that you can go in, especially when I'm talking with students who are just entering their career. One of the things that I say is at some point, you got to close some doors. If you try to keep every single door open, you're never going to go through a door and actually explore what's next. Actually, interesting enough, as we talk about music, Jimmy Iovine has this amazing clip in Defiant Ones. It's a documentary with him and Dr. Dre. And he says, you know, you have to be like horses with the blinders on because you can't look left or right because if you do, you're going to trip and fall. Having that within you, you got to cut away all the noise to really figure out what it is you want to do. And often in my career, what I've done is I've looked for a feeling. When I started writing Pitch Factory, I got really excited. There's like an energy that starts to come within you that you just feel like there's something there and you just got to trust almost in the process of saying, hey, I'm going to go down this door. I don't know if this even makes sense, but I'm just going to trust the process. I'm going to trust this feeling that is starting to come about this energy. And that's exactly what I started to feel as. I was writing. And also, I think it's really important that you don't necessarily overshare what you're doing, at least to get feedback from other people, because it's your journey. I think a lot of strategists, they're used to thinking in scenarios. I know even with my own business, I'm like, well, what are three ways that we could do it? And then I want to make a decision. I don't want to just think of or see one particular scenario. I want to see at least three, make a decision, but then you commit to it. And it could be a six to 12 month commitment, but you just got to make it happen, and then you learn along the way. But I think a lot of people, they sort of look for almost approval, for permission in the guise of getting feedback. I think it's really dangerous. Have you found yourself doing that or have you been quite disciplined about what Stephen King would call writing with the door shut? I definitely go down that path of like trying to talk to as, 
a strategist, right? That's what strategists do. They try to get as much signal as possible, try to speak with everyone. I think the other danger of that, and I've had to remind myself is when you talk about an idea, especially when you haven't even started the idea, you get the same amount of dopamine in your brain that makes you think you've actually done the idea. So I've been very cognizant of just making sure, especially as I'm just starting to say, you know, I'm having these conversations about this business, but I haven't done anything yet. And I still need to do the actual business. I can't get confused with having these conversations, making my brain think that I've actually done something because I have it. And so knowing that distinction, especially before you go in, I think is just super important. Does that come from the research where if you say that you're going to strive for a particular goal, such as weight loss or going to the gym, that your brain is like, yeah, you just said it. So you've slightly achieved it. Therefore, you don't need to do it, right? That's super interesting. Running a business focused on helping other people pitch, I feel like the biggest risk is how much of a pitch can you realistically control and therefore how much of a pitch, its success or failure, will you realistically be credited <laughs> credited or discredited with? How are you thinking through that? You know, what I think makes a great pitch, especially in my experience, is creating the right environment for a pitch. Often when an agency is pitching, whether they are trying to pitch for brand new business or to retain business, it's hard to step away. You kind of need someone to say, here is the environment in which we're going to pitch. Here is the winning ambition. And without that, I feel that you don't have the right sandbox almost to have an environment where you can pitch with joy and pitch to win. And so the way I'm seeing it is kind of like a music producer that kind of comes in, sets the right environment in the studio so that the artists, the people who are pitching can do their best work. And if I can enable that, then that is really the goal is how do I make sure all these different people can do their best work and not get caught up in the politics of the pitch, really focus on the work. And I believe if you do that, you're going to win more often than you're not going to win. I agree that nearly any project, let alone any pitch, there needs to be a discrete establishment of the culture of this pitch or of this project, which means you need to be able to discuss in public the things that are typically kept private, such as the beliefs and the behaviors, beliefs and behaviors tend to create culture, the beliefs and the behaviors that we're going to agree to to make this pitch happen, one of which could be we're not going to work 80 hours a week to make this pitch happen. But those things need to be explicit so that you can function more effectively. But my question for you is, building on this, rapid fire, top five most common problems with the pitch process, especially through the lens of the agency's experience of pitching? Yeah, I would say right off the bat, no system for how to pitch, no plan for how to pitch, no winning aspiration. It needs to be detailed, not matching the feeling of the pitch, the feeling that you need to evoke in whoever's receiving that pitch, and then not playing it too safe. I think those would be my top five. So not playing it too safe. Yeah, exactly. No winning aspiration. That feels weird. People pitching, but not aspiring to win. Clarify what you mean by that. What I call the winning aspiration, especially as soon as that brief comes, you kind of want that almost first reaction of what's it going to take to win this pitch. 
And I call that the winning aspiration because if you can write that down, often what happens is you get caught in all these different trains of thought. You get caught in what you've done previously and this is what it's going to be. But if you can just clear all that out and say, here's the winning aspiration, here's what it's going to take to win this pitch. Now let's figure out what the right answer is versus what the answer is because of this is how we've always done it, or this is what we think is going to be required, or just legacy issues as well. I think you get away from all of that and you just then crystal focus. It becomes your North Star. Multiple times throughout that pitch, you need to take a step back and say, is this going to deliver on the winning aspiration? If not, you got to go back to the drawing board and start over again, which is a hard process. It requires kind of discipline to do that. I'd love to hear an example. As you're talking through this, I spent a little bit of time around the football and soccer world, which is I'm sure a lot of what a lot of listeners also do. But you know, they're pretty well-known coaches, Jurgen Klopp, Pep Guardiola. In that world, they tend to separate in the commentary and analysis the difference between performance and results. So they might say, great performance, not great result, or great performance, great result, or bad performance, good result, et cetera, right? There's obviously a quadrant situation, even though I just went through three of them. And what that means is often some purist cult and often what that means is coaches who can be a little bit more purist, who are very focused on culture and a way of playing. They want to win in the right way. But also, it's not that they're okay with losing, but if they lose, but they play the right way, that's also better than not playing the right way and losing. What is an example, a practical example of a captivating, exhilarating ambition to win or winning ambition? Let's make it more real. Let's say it's you and I are pitching. How are we going to navigate? that particular question. It gets very specific to what we are pitching, the context and the brand and kind of what we're bringing to the table as well. But you know, it could be as simple as saying, hey, we believe that this brand needs to do this with consumers. Like, hey, you don't have a brand love issue. You actually have a relevance issue, or you've got this issue. It's getting to the heart of whatever the brief is. And I think the challenge is you want to make it specific to whatever that brief is and whatever that category or brand is. So you really want to say, you know, this is what we think that brand needs and cut all the bullshit out of that statement. And it's not a long statement. It's probably one single statement that becomes that thread of steel throughout that entire presentation. And it's really focused on what's it going to take to win for that brand based on whatever business problem or business challenge they're briefing on. I think it requires a little bit of self-awareness or a lot of self-awareness. Like what's our philosophy here? And when I say words like philosophy, I don't mean highfalutin philosophy, but what do we as an agency believe we're here to do? What do we believe we're great at? And then what's the overlap with what the clients ask for and also what they've bought in the past? So that you might say, you know what? Our winning ambition is to go in, but we're not just going to make an ad or show an ad campaign. We're going to show different ways to solve the root cause of the problem that we've been presented. Two, we're going to go in with exceptional craft. Three, we're not going to use celebrity. I don't know. But you're basically creating a a mini culture or a mini operating system for the pitch that helps animate you because you're like, okay, there are three things that we need to do. And if we do them well, then we're winning whether or not we actually win. But we believe that doing those three things will get us closest to winning. Go, right? But it's being intentional with the culture and the actions that you believe you need to undertake to get you closest to the win. Totally. And it actually brings up a really interesting point. 
let's give a brand example. When a brand issues an RFP and they're interviewing all these different agencies, they are looking for how you think and they're choosing you based on your taste, which we often don't talk a lot about, but they are selecting your taste and your worldview into how you think marketing communications or advertising or whatever your agency is selling, what their worldview is on how it works specifically for their brand. And without that, I think agencies often do a disservice to themselves by not presenting that worldview or that POV because they think, what if they don't like that POV? Then we're going to lose. But no, you actually need that POV. And your job is to sell them on why that's the right POV for that specific brand and that specific challenge. I've worked in agencies that sort of started out and loved being a bit of a misfit digital child. So for example, Big Spaceship in Brooklyn, really quirky work, awesome design, really quirky work. And you know, I felt a lot of clients came to us because our people knew the edges of the internet back then. We knew the edges of it and that's what they wanted. But as you get a little bit bigger or you're getting in front of more conservative people or the pitch consultants, sometimes you might second guess yourself and say, oh, maybe we should turn the weirdness down. One of the issues you mentioned was playing it too safe. Isn't that a smart thing to do when you think about the kind of work that seems to be getting bought out there and the research about how like marketers are buying work with less humor in it these days, with less of a sense of risk in it? Isn't playing it safe a smart thing to do? Not to win the pitch. To win the pitch, you have to show them the wild, the quirky, the weirdness Once you get in there and you learn more about the brand and the category and some of the politics that go on, then it may take a different shape. But in order to win that pitch, there is a reason why they are pitching the business. They are not satisfied with a specific thing, or it could be some underlying motivation. In order to win the pitch, I firmly believe you can't play it safe. And a pitch is licensed to get it wrong. You're not expected to know how everything works and how that organization internally operates. They need a company or someone who is kind of seeing it from a different angle. So if you're a brand manager within a brand, all you see is that brand. You need someone to point out, hey, wait a minute, here's something really cool out here that you've probably never seen before. And you got to bring that to the table. That's why they're hiring you. So, you know, I think the weirder, the better. So as you head out on this adventure to become the Mari Kondo of pitching, pitch with joy, what are the least joyful aspects of pitching in your experience? And I'm going to add some. Yeah, let's do it. There's so many. I talked about not having a system or not having a process. When you don't have a system, you don't have a process, and you've got senior leadership who's starting to get a little worried about the pitch, and they start then flying in 48 hours, 72 hours before, they haven't seen the journey, they're not part of the journey, and then all of a sudden they want to change direction. It happens more often than you think. And senior leadership's not doing it out of malice. They want to help. They genuinely think they're helping, but it is very disruptive to the process. And I don't believe that if that happens, then you know sometimes the final product's better. But if you're getting cutting it close to pitch deadline and you're starting to do that, I guarantee the client is going to know when you walk into a pitch room. You have to have swagger when walking into a pitch room. And if you already you have your confidence shot, it's not going to go well. I'll give you a really practical example. I was working on a pitch for an alcohol beverage company. 
and we're working away, we're in the room, and senior leadership comes over and whispers into my ear, basically says, hey, I, I know the client really well. Uh, this one's yours to lose. Don't fuck it up. Pats me on the back and walks away. And I, I was like, oh, shit, that just messed me up. Like everything that I've thought, now I have to rethink because it puts nerves and anxiety into the system. It's not healthy. I would say that's probably one of the biggest ones. Ah, uh, smart person. Hey, pull your mind out of those timesheets for a second and take a look at the Sweathead website. We have three membership levels, starter mode, flight mode, and beast mode. They give you access to a variety of strategy masterclasses, conferences, accelerators, and online learning, some of which has been known to make people cry because they like it, they like it, they feel seen. Make the most of your mind this year or any year and visit www.sweathead.com today. Now back to the interview. Do, 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 do. What happens if you introduce fear into the pitch or any project process is you turn on the fight or flight reaction. It preoccupies the mind. People become defensive. They're nervous about losing their job, which means that their energy is not going to being creative. Creativity requires a sense of flow, a sense of freedom, the uh, belief that you can meander for a little while and something will pop into your head and you can connect that to something else. But Fear, that button, you press that as a leader, you're basically <laughs> undermining the pitch. I want to throw in on this one and big, big shout outs to my friends in PR firms who work in matrixed organizations, who work their butts off on pitches, and then 10 senior people, chairs, have names like chairs, different categories. They get flown in or zoomed in to judge the pitch two days before, and then they throw all the thinking out. It's horrible. It's such a horrible experience. And when I've seen that up close, I'm like, okay, either you're exceptional or you're actually not good managers because you basically have hired all these people to work on this pitch, but you don't think they're very good. And so now you're authoring it. So you're either a megalomaniac or you're just a terrible person at hiring. You're terrible at hiring. It's so annoying. Postmortems after the pitch. We're going to jump around. Postmortems are joyless, aren't they? Can't stand them. What's the, why, why do you call them postmortems? Who died? They can be really good. You know, I was at an agency and we had one agency of the year. And literally the next day, we had a postmortem and we pulled everyone into the room and we said, hey, this is really great. We've done really great, but the work is still not good enough. Let's have a postmortem on all the work that we submitted and let's talk about it. And let's talk about how we can make it better. I think the problem with postmortems is they often only happen. When something bad has happened, you didn't win the pitch, then you got to do the postmortem. But if you get into a practice and you build a culture where you're doing a postmortem, whether you win or lose, that's the culture that you need to create because then it's not about uh, pointing fingers at like, hey, well, you did this and you did that. It's like, no, no, no. We're all here about the work. Let's talk about the work. How can we make it better? Again, regardless of the outcome, but more from back to joy back from a place of joy and really caring deeply about the product and the work. What would be a more joyful name for a postmortem? It's a celebration of the process. We should call them celebrations. I think we can do better, but we'll go with that now. But what's another joyless part of pitching? There is a time in every single pitch called scary hours. And that is where you don't know how you're going to get this pitch across the line. It happens every single time. I go into a very dark place, but I've come to realize over the years is that that's just part of the process because you're trying to solve a problem. You're trying to solve a puzzle. 
And sometimes you don't even know what this puzzle looks like. And if you're really deep in the work and you take a step back and you're like, oh, nah, this is shit. This is not good because it just doesn't click. It hasn't clicked yet. And so that is a, for many, can be a very joyless part of the process because it just feels like, oh my gosh, we're doing all this work and we just keep going back to the drawing board and like, when are we just going to get on with it? But I think you do have to trust the process, trust that every single time you're going to figure it out one way or another, you're going to figure it out. And so when you get into those scary hours, having some type of method within your overall pitch process that helps everyone on the team. And that could be as simple as pencils down, everyone go for a walk. Everyone needs to go for a walk. Everyone needs to just shut the laptops down and go do something completely different from the pitch, which at the time seems counterproductive because it's like, what are you talking about? We need to get this thing done. But I do find is that you need to clear your brain go do a workout, go meditate, whatever it is, you got to go do it and then come back to it with some fresh eyes. Science and research would support that as a thing to do for sure. Fill the brain, do your work, get away from it, let the subconscious generate and possibly recover. Let's do a couple more joyless parts of pitching. I got two that I'm going to do very quickly if you've got a point of view add-on. One is in the first week or so, the first few days of the pitch where you digest everything, you've been briefed, and then you have questions joyless part of pitching is when procurement wants to share your questions and the answers to those questions with the people you're competing against, which punishes you for having good questions and rewards them for having crap questions. That's joyless to me, Nish. It's part of the process. And then there's the whole thing. I was like, well, we should hold those questions back because we don't want anyone else to know. Honestly, that's where we're just playing games with ourselves. It's like, listen, you've got a question, you need the answer to it. Who cares if it's some really smart question and your competition's going to know, doesn't matter. I think that's where we get into trouble when we start to worry about what the competitors are doing. If you've got a really good question, just ask it and let it flow. All right, your turn. Let's do two more. You give me one, I'll give you one. Another joyless part of pitching. Another one is rehearsals. Rehearsals because one, trying to get everyone in the same room at the same time with the same mindset, very difficult. And on top of that, a lot of people say, I don't like to rehearse. I want to be loose in the pitch room. Bullshit. That's ridiculous. But joyless because it's painful. You have to go through those rehearsals and do them multiple times. So yeah, rehearsals, joyless. Rehearsals are good and needed and they can be fun if you've got a joyful culture with the pitch. The thing that has annoyed me, especially in New York, is if you've got a president who's just an a-hole and they're watching the rehearsal, hypercritical, and their whole body language is frozen and they're tasering everybody with their eyes. I can't stand that. Just get out of the room because you're totally killing the vibe. A little one, you would have experienced this as a strategist for sure. Changing the slides that I have to present either with me knowing the day before and because I'm young, I have to say, okay, or without me knowing and then surprising me in the actual pitch. Joyless. Totally joyless. That's a hard one. The other one, Mark, it reminds me is Q&A in a pitch is always so tricky. Like who's going to answer the question? And then do you direct it to someone who doesn't have the answer? And then you put them on the spot. And it's just this weird part of the pitch process that just feels like needs to be reinvented. There needs to be a better way to do Q&A, especially it's right at the end and you're running out of time, gets messy. 
we're always told that if you have been the one presenting, if a question gets asked, someone else should answer because your brain will be somewhere else. But as you were sort of describing that, for some reason, I was getting some flashbacks to times where we've pitched and there's, you know, five of you in the pitch team, you walk into the room, there's 30 people watching, you pitch and then you leave without any questions. That's also joyless. It's like, what was that? They like it? I feel so vulnerable right now. All right, Nish. Well, good luck with the Pitch Factory. I'm looking forward to hearing how you go. Let's chat the Young Lions. So let's imagine, let's imagine that because I'm about to say this, that this podcast episode gets sent around the world to tens and tens of people who are about to compete at Cannes, Cannes in Southern France. France. Oh my God, what did I just do there? I, I used to be fluent in French and now I'm just... There's uh, some... Nice to, uh, what's his name? Brice de Nice and uh, OSS 67, I think that's. Anyway, I was just channeling some strange French comedy movies and it came out all wrong and in a way that it makes no sense to anybody else. So apologies. Can Young Lines, you've somehow earned the right to represent your country and your agency at Can. What do you do in the weeks before going? Or actually, why don't you explain what this is for people who don't know what it is? It is like the Oscars for the ad industry. And the Young Lions competition is a chance for new talent within the industry to compete. And often you get paired or you choose your partner and you get a brief. The brief comes to you the day of the competition. And usually you get 24 hours. I think there are some categories, the film category, you get 48 hours to put together your pitch and your response to that brief. And it's stressful, but can be really exciting. And if you, within your country, if you qualify and you win that competition, then you get flown out to Cannes, Cannes, and then you compete again. And then they select someone globally who's going to be the young lion. An amazing opportunity to experience creativity at its best, one would argue, and get exposure to so many different parts of creativity within the industry globally. An amazing competition. If you're listening to this, I would highly recommend you know, looking it up and seeing if you can register and get your agency to help you with that. An amazing experience for anyone that is involved in doing it and a taste for, for pitching because the Young Lions competition is a pitch. That's really what it's all about. And I should also add that you and I are going to publish some tips because I put together some tips last year for a young team. And you've got some tips. So we're going to publish them at least on LinkedIn, if not on Instagram, the week that this episode comes out. So if you want those tips, go to LinkedIn or Instagram and you can find them. Before going to Cannes, how can a team get ready? What do they need in place? Right off the bat, you need to have a plan. And if you're partnered up with someone, whether you are a long-term friend with that person, you think you really know them, you need to ask the hard questions. What I call the hard questions is, how are you going to work together? Because yes, you might be friends with this person, but you may not have actually been in a room for 24 hours with that person. You know, what I call the hard questions are, who's bringing the snacks? What kind of snacks are we going to have? How do you like to take a break? Do you like to have a break? Do you just want to keep working? Do you like loud crunching noises? You know, those small things, especially during scary hours, we talked about that a little bit earlier. That's when you get really annoyed. And when you get really annoyed, what starts to happen is you just can't see past anything else. You're just annoyed with this person that you're in a room with and you just want to get it done and get out of that room. So, you know, asking all of those questions, I think, 
in advance is just going to help the day of when you get into the room to make sure you're creating the right environment for how you're going to develop the work, which is really, again, back to how do you create an environment of joy and make sure that you're showing up in your best way to produce the work, which is really what it's about. So you, you want to have a discussion about how you're going to work together, roles and responsibilities, possibly how you're going to approach time as well. So time boxing, I think, is something that people newer to the industry can be weak at. But I think one law, Parkinson's law, that's useful to think about is you're going to take the time you've got. What does that mean? That's a weird thing to say. How is that useful? Well, if you've got a day, if you've got two days, you're literally going to have to get it done in that time. So build a timeline within that day that you can say, okay, we're going to generate 20 ideas in the first 60 minutes or whatever you need to do. Maybe you start with research, but whatever it is, give things numbers and specific times. And then when you hit the time, you're like, okay, where are we at? Do we have something to work with? Yep. Good. Lock and load. Because you can't keep going back and undoing things or redoing things, right? So time boxing, I think, is a skill that often people new to the industry aren't very comfortable with. Is there another one that's at that foundational level that could be useful for people competing in can? This one's a big one that I believe in. I often say PowerPoint is where you hang your art. It's not where you create it. And so it's a mistake. You get the brief. Your first inclination is let's open up the laptop and start opening up PowerPoint and let's start putting the work together. It's like, no, no, no. You can't do that just yet. That's the last step in this process. You got to, and I'm old school, but you can use Notepad or whatever. You have to work and work out the problem and the different steps before you get to starting to try to design the slides or what the actual pitch is going to look like, you got to put in the work into what is it that you're doing? Who is the audience? What is the problem? What is the strategy? So that's a really, I think, foundational one to make sure that you and your partner are on the same page on how the work actually needs to develop. Totally. I'll often say do the work and then frame it. A framework is not a form. Get out of the technology, pen and paper, discussions, I think super important. Connected to all of this, at least at that sort of foundational level, I think is all the teams would benefit from discussing the words that they use. Because if you don't have a lot of time, and I'm using the word idea in a way that's different to the way you're using the word idea, or insight or strategy, have that conversation. What are the pieces of jargon that we're going to use and what do they mean to you? Because chances are in that short period of time, There'll be fewer than 10 pieces of jargon, fewer than 10 words you're going to use where that could cause problems. Like, oh, I've got an idea or I've got an insight. It's like, oh, that's not what we agreed. That's actually not an insight or an idea based on our agreement of it. And it's not to be sort of fussy. It's to be clear-headed with it because otherwise you spin and spin and spin and you get frustrated. So I think language, a little glossary is important. Any other last foundational elements that would be useful to have in place? I would just say the words are really important and especially the, the place where I see it often get messed up a lot and not just in young lions, but generally strategy wise is what is an idea? Often they're presented as a tactic. And in order to win the young lions competition, you can't start your big idea with a tactic that is attached to a media channel. It's got to be media agnostic. It's got to be a little bit high level. And so what could happen, especially if you're with a partner, you have this really exciting idea. First idea, you're like, ah, oh, this is the this is the thing, but it's it's a tactic. It's not the strategy. It's not the idea. So thinking through, Mark, you've got this amazing framework, the four points framework. 
that if people, if listeners are not familiar with it, should be familiar with it, use that as an exercise to go through what is the problem, what is the advantage, what is the edge, and then get to an insight. And you can't just do it once. I think you have to actually do it like four, five, six times, have different versions, maybe even have you and your partner go in different rooms and go do it and then compare notes and really fight with those words. I think it's just super important to get those foundational blocks in place. I agree. I see a lot of work from portfolio schools as well. A lot of it's tactics and stuff you've seen before, or it doesn't actually represent anything that seems realistic to the lives of the people that you're trying to communicate with. It's just like someone's young and they use the internet in a particular way. They assume everyone uses the internet in that particular way. And then they're like, we're going to do a full buyout of Roblox and Fortnite on the same day. And it's like, no, you're not. But what I did want to say is for the young lions, use your youth because you're often going to be judged by people who are older than you. And so if you can show a little bit of insight into channels that they wish they knew better, that can actually be a way to win, you know, talking of winning, winning ambition. And one other thing I would throw in for like a winning ambition is I would want to see that you've somehow done some research in the first hour or two. And it could be really light. It could be keyword research. You looked at Reddit, you went to Google Scholar and looked up some academic papers, or you've phoned or whatever it was, 10 people about the topic in that first hour or two. If you do that, first of all, you're probably going to stand out. And two, it hooks the people judging you because you're immediately telling stories about the real world. Nish, any other little techniques like that that you would want to see a team do as they get their thinking together? What I often say on the Young Lions competition is there's no marks for restating what's already in the brief. The brief the way I like to think about it is, is full of prompts, but not definitives. And so you got to use those prompts to find an angle on the audience or something that has been missed. And remember, because it's not a definitive, you can challenge the brief in a Young Lions competition. You can say, hey, this is the audience, but what we may have missed is this audience because of this thing that we explored or this thing that we found. So just really important to not take everything that you get in the brief as definitive. You question everything and find your angle because that's what it's going to take to stand out. The other big one that often gets overlooked, you don't start this, but at the end point, name your idea. Because the judges, they're reviewing hundreds of these things. They're flipping through them. They're industry professionals. They don't have a lot of time. So they're flipping through this stuff. And then they're going to get into the room and discuss with the other judges which of those presentations should be shortlisted. Give them the shortcut that allows them to discuss your idea. If you don't name it, they're probably going to forget it or they're going to try to name it themselves and not do your idea justice. Give it a name. So signposting or scaffolding is or are two important concepts with teaching or presenting. Naming ideas are part of that. They allow the brain to pause, digest it, and then all of a sudden there's a structure that you've put in someone's memory to help them. Uh-oh, remember you, okay? Two quick examples from Leo Burnett Sydney that I always use. WWF, idea, Earth Hour. In a sentence, we're going to get the world to turn its lights off for an hour. McDonald's, the name it burger. That's the idea name. In a sentence, we're going to get Australia to name the new burger do that sort of stuff, use that kind of language. And also, I love the idea of challenging the brief. It's sexy. It's like, oh, where's this person going to go? They're cheeky. I'm down. I want to hear this. What's going to happen? And also, when you're presenting, 
This is pretty common when it comes to books that talk about writing novels, start in the action. It's really common for people who are writing fiction to write 10, 20, 30, 40 pages, and then they delete them, and all of a sudden they've got an action scene. So think about how your Netflix shows start. Think about how James Bond starts. Start big, because otherwise people are not going to remember you. Totally. That reminds me, another key point, your headline has to do the heavy lifting. Don't just say, audience, next slide strategy, next slide objectives. Boring. Make the headline juicy. Make the reader want to be like, what is this person talking about? I need to actually read some of the details on this slide. So it's the hook that gets people into the slide, into the next slide. The headline's super important. Even the title of the first slide on the presentation, don't just call it RFP, Young Lions Competition. Put a really sexy hook right at the front on that first page that makes the judge say, oh, geez, this is different. It connects back to pitching with joy. I think there's a shift for a lot of people as they go through their advertising career, which is, I have so much information to share. That's where it starts. Two, I'm going to put on a show and I'm going to go out putting on a show. That's a nice shift because you can't get a show wrong, right? And then what you're thinking about is, am I boring people? Am I getting into their heads? Am I entertaining them? Could I take even more creative risks in the presentation of the creative ideas? So if you're out there and you're going to Cannes, good luck. It's a great experience. And just by even going there, let alone whether you do well, you'll be able to trade on that for three to five years in your career, right, Nish? Oh, totally. It's just such a great experience to be a part of. And, you know, it builds your portfolio, it helps build your career. And you know what? Here's the other thing, Mark. I think a lot of people who have been in this industry for a long time get really jaded because, you know, you just get jaded after working on so many pitches. And we need less of that. We need a lot more joy in this industry because it's a fun industry and we forget about that. And I think if you get a chance to see creativity at a global stage, it's a pretty, pretty cool experience. It is. It is. Uh, it's like a lot of things people criticize can and, and other events, festivals, famous advertising people. Just take what you need. You can find enjoyment there. I, I've talked there. It was really a great experience, actually. Uh, you can find your people there. Nish, if people want to find you online and find out about the Pitch Factory, where can they look? Hit me up on, on LinkedIn is probably the best place to find me. I'm just under Nish Shah. That's the best place to connect. Love it. Best wishes with the journey. Thank you for sharing with us how you reached this place right now. Looking forward to seeing what happens in the future. And thank you for sharing your tips about pitching and also your tips for the Young Can Lions. I look forward to watching on to see what you do in the future. So much fun. Thank you, Mark, for having me. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. Subscribe to our newsletter. Find us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Sweathead. And if you're interested in finding out about our strategy memberships, company training, or books, visit sweathead.com. Whoop, whoop.